You sound absolutely wonderful. If you want to follow along today, you can grab your message notes on the back. Most of the scriptures that we'll use will be on it. We're in Luke chapter 8 today. Luke chapter 8 today. I came across a story that I wanted to share with you uh, right away. It's a story that uh, maybe if you're about my age, you can relate to. And by my age, I mean mid-30s. Here we go. All right. So don't laugh too hard, Pastor Will. It's okay. Uh, Here's how the story goes. Because my family's financial status growing up, I never had the coolest name brand clothes. Uh, One year, my parents bought me two pair of Sears tough skin jeans for school. A brown pair and a blue pair. All the cool kids had Levi's with silver or red tabs. And I hated those kids, the author says. I had two pair of tough skins that had to last all year. And my shoes were even worse. So when my jeans started to wear out and getting holes in them, my mom, who was big into cross-stitching, made a huge Indian head on the leg of my brown jeans and an American flag on the rear of my blue jeans. I can still hear kids pledging allegiance to my rear and calling me Tonto. I had vowed that I would never have to face that kind of rejection again. This is an adult man reflecting back on some of his developmental experiences. Today I want to talk to you about breaking free, getting out of the grave of shame. Shame is a pervasive challenge in our world. When we're talking today, I'm not going to have to build a case that you should ask yourself if you have any shame in your life. I won't have to do that because as we go through today's Bible story from Luke chapter 8, as we talk about how challenging a life marked with shame can be, if it's you at all, you'll know it. In fact, you might already have hints today that it's not an accident that you're in the room right now. Shame is one of those things that is all around us. If you don't have it, if you've been broken free from that, if that's never been a a thing for you, good, good for you. But I can assure you that you're sitting in a room with some people who this is a very real thing for. You have relatives who this is a real thing for. Your children, your grandkids your nieces and nephews, people you care about. And so I want to ask you today to listen, not just for yourself. I want to ask you to listen to see what the Spirit of God, what the Word of God might say to you, what tools you might get today, so that if you're ever engaging someone who's struggling with shame, a pervasive sense that their value and worth has been permanently scarred, it's been permanently darkened, There's a permanent marker on them that says to some form or another, rejected. If if you're ever around somebody like that, you'll have at the ready. You'll have in your Batman's utility belt a quick tool that you can grab out of and say, I just want to give you some perspective about what the word of God, what what the love of God, what the power of God would say to you about shame. And if you're here today and in any way you can relate to this, I want to let you know that you, again, are not here by accident, that God, I believe in his providence, put you right here to hear a message that I believe will bring life to you and some hope to you. The truth is, is most people in life know the experience of shame, but most people don't understand really what's going on. And so today, we're going to uncover some of God's truth. And we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to babble in, or dabble in a little bit of psycho uh, stuff just a, a little bit, just to uh, talk about our common experience mentally and emotionally. But the truth of the matter is, primarily what we're going to do is we're going to open up to whatever God wants to speak to us. Now, shame in human history has a long record. Um, our ancestors, our great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers, they dealt with this stuff. In fact, if you go to the first few pages of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, so we're just two pages in to your Bible, you get the story where shame first shows up in the story of the Bible. Adam and Eve have been created. Things are perfect. Here's what God said about all of his creation, especially when he created humankind. He said, it is good when he created the trees. It is good when he created the animals. It is good when he carved out the land from the sea. But when he created human beings, he said, it is very good. That was his summary statement about us. Very good. Awesome. Excellent. And then he gave them some engagements that they were supposed to do and some they were not to do. And they made a mistake, a big, 
big break in their agreements with God. And what happened to them when that occurred is revealed to us in the conversation they have with God. The very next conversation after their big, we blew it mistake. Up until this point, the Bible gives us a strange, mysterious, and beautiful picture before the mistake they made, before they had made any error in judgment, before they sinned, the Bible says that God used to come down in the cool of the day and talk with them. That's cool. Wouldn't that have been neat to just somehow engage with God, to have that close connection, the intimacy that comes from knowing you value me, I value you, we're doing life together in a healthy way, and so they would have this intimate and meaningful and satisfying connection with God that, 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 that built up their, their sense of self-worth, their, built up their sense of God's worth, that built up their purpose in this world. I, mean, I don't know all that they talked about, but I bet they came away from every conversation saying, this is pretty sweet, this is pretty sweet. But when they blew it, the conversation goes a completely different way. The Bible says that God goes and finds Adam and Eve, and he finds them hiding from him. Hiding from the one who created, the one who gave everything that they needed to sustain all that they would need. The one that had put destiny and purpose in their heart, they're hiding so when they encounter God after their fall, in Genesis chapter 3, on your message notes, about verse 10, the conversation has begun, and God says to them, where are you? Um, by, by the way, God knew the answer. Whenever in the Bible God asks a question, it's not that he needs information. <laughs> what he's doing is, is he's engaging a conversation to elicit the right information to the surface. To, to change perspective in the conversation, to bring a person all the way in for their good. So God says, where are you? Here's how Adam responds. I heard you in the garden. So you were coming to our normal meeting place. And here's, a, here's our phrase. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And look at what God says. Who told you you were naked? Who told you? So, do you know enough of the story to know that when God created Adam and Eve and it was very, very good, he created them naked. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. It's one of my life verses. Naked and unashamed. That's a joke, all right? Just trying to see if you're listening. Okay. They were naked and unashamed. It's been a long time since I've been naked and unashamed, but it's, it's some therapy I need to go through, I suppose. But, but it was perfect. They were very, very good. But now they've made a mistake and they're talking to God. They're hiding. That's not the reality they've known. That's not their destiny. That's not what they were created for. They're hiding from their creator. And then why were you hiding? Because we heard you and we're naked and we're ashamed. And it's a picture, not just of their physical nakedness, but the emotion, their experience, their humanity now has been made visible. And God says to them, in effect, if you'll let me paraphrase, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? We've been having conversations, and in all of our conversations, you never one time had to hide. You never one time had to say to me, we're, we're ashamed of what you might see. So who are you listening to? Today, I'm asking you the same question. When it comes to the grave of shame that can become a tomb that keeps you from engaging, that if you do engage, you engage with trepidation. If you do engage, there's some hiddenness, some management of the self, some projecting, often some deception accompanies people walking in shame. Shame is one of those things that if it gets in deep in your heart, it affects every area of your life. And the very things that used to or have the capacity to bring you joy and satisfaction, those very things get tainted with shame. And the spread of effect of shame will rob you from God's hope for you. Do you know what Jesus said in one of the most important lines in all of Scripture? He said, I've come that you might have life 
and have it abundantly. Have it to the full. Shame is the attack of the enemy, and it's very effective to make sure that you do not live free and abundant with God. Instead of free and abundant and open and transparent in who God has made you to be, you live in the shadows, covering your nakedness, hoping people don't see, afraid if they do, they won't like what they see. You tell yourself all kinds of things. You tell yourself other people have these opinions of you. Shame is destructive to your emotion. It's destructive to your spiritual reality. It robs you of the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. So let's talk about some emotions similar to shame. Uh, Embarrassment has been described as kind of low-grade shame. It's a moment where shame can be a lifestyle. It's a moment where something happens and some portion of who you are is on display in a way that's very uncomfortable. Here's one of mine. Here's one of mine. Um, I've told you the story a handful of times. Some of you were here. But I'm standing on this stage and on that screen right there at the bottom of the screen it says, no joke, your fly is down. That's what it said right there on the screen. I'm in the middle of a message. I didn't know what to do. So the old speaker uh, engagement piece is as you just, you know, acknowledge the elephant in the room. So I turned around. Everybody's like, what's he doing? I did the business I needed to do. Turned around and said, I just turned around because my fly was down. It was an embarrassing moment, but that wasn't my most embarrassing moment. When I was about 16 years old, my parents used to manage the Santa Claus pictures at the mall. Our friend owned the company. We ran the business. We made all kinds of extra money for Christmas. It was great. I was the 16-year-old photographer. Let me tell you how important that was. I stood there and pressed a button. That's what I did. But it's very, very visible. I'm in the middle of the mall on an elevated platform. Now, this is the mid-'80s. This is when mall life was the life. This is where everybody that did anything did it at the mall. We got our orange Julius. We spent money at the arcade. We walked around. We tried to get our parents not to buy toughy jeans at the Sears at the end of the mall. That's what we did. And so I'm up there taking pictures, and I look down the mall. It's Christmas time. It's very, very quiet, and I see her. I'm 16. I haven't met Jill yet, but I see the girl I'm pretty sure the Lord wants me to marry, and there she is. And I'm dressed sharp because it's business and professional. I'm doing the thing. And so these kids come up, take the picture, wave. Kids are in line, take the picture, wave. She's getting closer. I can tell she's going to get her picture made with Santa. I have a reason to talk to her. Life's good. God's on his throne. Jesus loves me. This I know. That kind of stuff. Take the picture. She's in line. Wave. Take the picture. Step over here to get something. And I tripped. Right down the step. Flat on my face. Yeah. All of a sudden, God's not so kind. Why do bad things happen to good people? Life stinks. I'm in pain. It was embarrassing. It didn't get in my psyche. It was a moment. Some people know a cousin of shame. So embarrassment, it's guilt. Guilt is when you've done something legitimately bad and you feel, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish people didn't know I had done that. So there's embarrassment. There's also guilt. But on your message notes, I want to make a distinction. Guilt says... I did something bad. But shame says, I am something bad. Big difference. All of us have been guilty. Adam and Eve were guilty. They had reason to feel some embarrassment, perhaps. But their mistake instantly translated to deep self-loathing. And Jesus ultimately is going to come and redeem all that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. God sets in plan of redemption right away. And God actually takes away their fig leaves. That's where the fig leaf imagery comes from. You know, cover yourself with a fig leaf. God literally takes away their fig leaf. And for the first time, he kills an animal and takes the skins to cover their nakedness. And so God's engagement early was providing a way for shame to be covered 
And ultimately, that's going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. And shame can arise from feelings of guilt that don't get dealt with over time. Shame can arise from things that you have done and you can't break yourself away from that embarrassment and it goes to the deepest and darkest places. But shame can also happen to your life and come to your life because of what's happened to you. You you can have shame when you didn't do anything, but because of the words spoken over you, especially during developmentally important times in your life. You're no good. I wish you had never been born. You're so much trouble. Your sister is smart. You work hard. You begin to pick up on these messages. Some are direct, some are indirect. That the people around you, you tell yourself, and maybe it's accurate, don't have a value for you in their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you begin to internalize these messages that come to you. So it's things people have said to you. It's things people have done to you. Our world in the last few years has awoken to a reality, a dark reality of life in a fallen world where abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, the conversation about that corporately is such that it, it's not easy anymore to pretend that it's not there. It is there. It's happened. And in a room this size, and the folks listening online just by the raw statistics of the number, that abuse, perhaps sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, has touched your life. And as a kid, as a young adult, as a middle-aged adult even, those things that happened to us that we should have never occurred can get into our mind and get into our heart, get into our spirit. And deep self-loathing and shame can happen where you tell yourself, they broke me. It broke me. I'm not whole. I'm not complete. And it's understandable. It makes perfect sense. You probably don't have to think far in your realm of relationships to get to a name, maybe it's your own, where you can say, hey, the things that Ben is talking about right now, I, I, I see it. I know, I know, I, I, I've observed how shame can get in a person. Here's what shame makes a person tell himself or herself. I'm defective. I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm flawed, I'm dirty, I'm ugly, I'm impure, I'm disgusting, I'm unlovable, I'm weak, I'm pitiful, I'm insignificant, I'm worthless, I'm unwanted. And again, I don't have to convince you to think about these things because if shame has touched your life in the past and maybe you're free, or if there are still some hooks of shame in your life right now, as I go through that list, you know that's where you are a bit. And again, one of the proofs I believe that God loves you deeply is you're hearing this and engaging it right now. So shame is like, uh, it's like the stain that gets on your shirt. Guilt stains get washed once and they're gone. Shame stains get washed and you pull them out. And there might be some adjustment, but you can still see it. And so you treat it because you like the shirt, and you soak it, and you, whatever it is you do, and, you, you, and when you're done, it's still there. That's what shame does. It's the stain that doesn't leave, even though it's been engaged, you've thought about it, you've processed it, you've had so many conversations with yourself. So what happens when shame is there? Shame, when it's there, it can lead to a hopeless perfectionism. The idea that if I can get it all right, and if I can speak just right, and if I can show them just how put together I am or my work is, then they'll finally see my value and worth, and I'll get back those images, those messages, those engagements that say, no, you really are valued. See? We see how great you are. We see how good you can do things. 
Shame can, when it takes form in a person's life, lead to incredible harsh criticism of themselves and others. They're too hard on themselves and they're too hard on other people. This isn't because they're mean. It's because of the old adage that perhaps you have heard, hurt people hurt people. That's what happens. It's not that they're mean, but the folks around them encounter them as harsh and um, quick to find fault. Whenever you're around that person, I can almost always guarantee you that they're not just harsh on you, they're probably ten times harder on themselves. So shame can produce perfectionism, criticism, and it can produce helpless feelings. Helpless feelings. Like, I have no idea what to do. No one's ever going to like me. I'm never going to find a spouse. Nobody's ever going to treat me right. I'm never going to land the opportunity. This is just going to fall apart. I'll never get the promotion. I deserve the worst because everybody can see there's something flawed about me. I'll never even really try. I can't afford to put myself out there because I'm just now really starting to manage. And if I go out there and it's not liked, if I go out there and I'm not liked, I may not be able to manage that level of stress. I've tried that before, and it only left me feeling hollow and hurt. So I know that this can be a pretty heavy message, obviously. Because right now, I'm talking to you, or I'm talking to somebody you love. And your heart hurts for this. So I just want to pause for just a second and say, our Heavenly Father engaged humanity, the first record we have of it, After they were created, his first record was coming to meet them literally at the point of their shame. The thing that got his attention, the thing he wanted to engage, the thing that set in place a plan that would ultimately lead to our redemption, to our freedom, to us getting out of the grave of shame, the very thing was what we're talking about today. So if you wonder what God's heart for you is and for the people you love is right now, His heart hurts. The Bible says God has emotions. God hurts for us. He wants to help us. That's why he goes to great pains in the scriptures to make sure that repeatedly his opinion of you is stated with clarity. Parents, grandparents, you know what I'm talking about here. It's the kid who made the legitimate mistake. It was truly wrong. They failed. They got the bad grade or they did something or they were disobedient. And you can tell in that moment they're they're beyond embarrassed. They're hurting. So what does a good parent do? Hopefully yours did this. If they didn't, it might be part of why the shame has taken root in you. What a good parent does in a moment like that is you deal with the fault But as you deal with the fault, you deal with the person's identity too. You can deal with the fault very aggressively. You deal with the person and their identity and how they're gently. When that happens, people are able to deal with mistakes. They understand mistakes don't define them. But when there's harshness and harshness or mistakes and avoidance, a person begins to internalize other messages. In Luke chapter 8, we have in the pages of our Bible a story with Jesus where shame is on dramatic display. And it's one of the finest pieces of literature, just raw storytelling in the Bible. Because there's two primary characters that engage Jesus. There's a very wealthy, powerful, well-known man by the name of Jairus. And then there is an unnamed woman who is outcast from her community, has internalized shame, is suffering immensely, not by anything she did, but by something that was happening to her. She does, we don't even get to know her name. That's how insignificant she is in her community. And in Jesus' interaction with both of these people, we get to see his heart on display for people struggling with shame. We get to see as followers of Jesus, our heavenly father's heart for us on clear display. We get a message 
with great clarity of what God thinks about people that don't feel personal value and worth. We get to see with clarity what God thinks about people who other people have poor opinions of. And we get to experience it in the most unavoidable ways as we read this passage. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40 and following, if you want to follow along your message notes. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, mark that number, 12, was dying. So we have Jairus, we have his daughter, she's 12, she's a female, she's 12. And we have Jairus, well-known synagogue leader. Uh, Probably the original readers of Luke's gospel who were around that region, when they read Jairus, they're like, hey, I know him. They're probably eyewitnesses who know this story, been there when the text is first written. So that's the backdrop of what's going on. As Jesus was on his way to go to Jairus' house to meet with Jairus and his daughter, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, that's a polite way of saying she had an incredibly serious menstrual flow, uncontrollable. Uh, With it would have been pain. Um, With it would have been likely uh, barrenness, unable to bear children. Uh, We don't know the exact medical condition, but in her culture, unlike ours, Because she would have had this issue of blood from her, during that time, she would be unclean ceremonially. So that meant she wasn't allowed to be in public. She wasn't allowed to sit on somebody's chair. She wasn't allowed to go to public worship. Not only during that time, but if she had any few days of reprieve, she was ceremonially unclean for up to seven days after the fact. And so if it started up again in that season of time, she would have been unable to be around anybody. And in fact... The very fact she was in the crowd at all, she's going against custom, she's risking the scorn, the the real scorn of her culture and the people in her community just because she was present in the room or in the crowd with people. So she was subject to bleeding for, and what was our number? 12 years. So we have an important man's daughter who's 12 years old. We have a woman who's so unimportant, we don't even know her name, and for 12 years, she is marked by something she did not cause. It was just something that happened to her. And so the story is written to get us to compare and contrast what's going on here. If you're reading the story, it makes perfect sense that Jesus, an important man, his attention is captured by Jairus, a well-known synagogue leader, because an important man is captivated by an important man and makes perfect sense. Of course, Jairus, if he has need, has the ability to get Jesus' attention. He gets everybody's attention. That's the way it works. And of course, his daughter gets special treatment. So Jesus gets up and he makes his way to the daughter where she's lying and to Jairus' house. Of course, that's the way it always works in the world. People who are up, stay up, we tell ourselves. That's the way it works. But on his way to Jairus' house, this woman shows up. She's had this issue of bleeding And Luke, the doctor, Luke is a physician, theologian, he's a doctor. Luke tells us what's going on, but no one could heal her. So he's giving us the medical statement, the summary statement of her condition. This is just who and what she's going to go through for the rest of her life. Nothing can be done. So she came up behind him, Jesus, and she touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately, immediately, Her bleeding was stopped immediately. She touched the edge. Some of you who have grown up in church, you've heard the story. She touched the hem of his garment. Now, that that word, she touched. I I, I always get nervous of pastors who want to explain the real meaning of the Greek, and somehow it's very different than what the text obviously implies. But let me just point out a nuance here. She doesn't just touch. She grabs. It's the idea of she clutches. She holds on. It could be that she remembered the Old Testament prophets that said when the Messiah came, one of the ways you would know he's the one 
is he would come with healing in his wings. That was the imagery. We hear wings, we think angels, but he would come with healing that would drip from the edges of his garments. That was the prophecy. The wings of his garments. He was so powerful that anything that touched him at all, no matter how far away it was, the far edges of his garments, it would drip with healing for the nations and healing for people. Now, it's the way the prophets kind of poetically described what it would be like when the one comes. Maybe she had that in her mind. So she presses through the crowd. She goes against social convention. And with incredible desperation, she grabs hold. And look at what Jesus says. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when everybody around Jesus, all the disciples denied it, Peter said, I love Peter. I love Peter. By the way, this is the guy Jesus is going to start the church with, right? Peter says, uh, Jesus, <laughs> that's a crowd. It's a great number of people. And you're wanting to know who touched you? We've all bumped into you. What, what are you talking about? Peter was always so quick to speak. It might be part of why Jesus calls Peter to be a, a leader but Peter clearly doesn't understand the spiritual significance, one of the most important moments in the story of the gospel when Jesus' life is unfolding here. So Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then verse 47, this unnamed woman. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, so she had touched him, and by this point, she's already moved away. She's so ashamed. She doesn't want anybody to see her. She doesn't want it to be obvious. She's had to do what she had to do. She comes trembling, and she fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, now this next line, friends, this next line is the heart of your heavenly father to you. It's said to an unnamed woman in part so that everybody who reads this story can know. Yet she's unnamed in part so that in many ways my name can be inserted there. Her situation is different than mine. The thing that happened to her is different than mine. But the emotion, the feeling, the hooks of shame, if they're mine, I can insert my name here. Here's what Jesus says to her. Daughter. Now, in that culture, titles of address are a big deal. So when the, when the disciples heard Jesus pray, for instance, and he would say, Abba, Father. And then he would pray with power. They didn't know what to do with that because he, he, just, called G, he just called the Heavenly Father, Daddy. No, no, you don't talk to God like that. So when Jesus would say, Daddy, Papa, I want to talk to you. It, it rocked their world because titles of address are a big deal. You don't come to God like that. It's disrespectful. But Jesus talked to God like he knew him. The reason Jairus has so much significance because he has this title of a synagogue leader. And Jesus looks at this woman and he calls her daughter. It's, it's familiarity. It's I know you. It's it's. My little girl. Think about that. Here he is on his way to heal a little girl who has prominence and importance and prestige and all that goes with it. And he looks at her and he says, and we know who Jerry's little girl is, but you're my little girl. And I noticed you right away. Who touched me? I noticed you. And I felt something happened to me when you touched me. Power went out of me. That's not a statement of loss. That was a statement of something significant is happening here. And then when he has a chance to talk to her, it's all orchestrated on purpose. So that not only she does she get her healing physically happen, but something powerful happens, more powerful, I think, after happens. Daughter. My little girl. The one that nobody even knows your name. You're not even supposed to be here. And we're on our way to do some very important work to go touch Jairus' daughter. But you are important enough to me that if nobody else knows you, you're mine. 
You're my daughter. You're the one I'm connected to. Your faith, your belief, your trust, that thing that motivated you to press through the crowd, probably on your hands and knees because she's touching the hem of his garment. It's not up here. She doesn't just reach out and touch his shoulder. She's crawling through the crowd, faceless, pushing through, and she grabs hold long enough, and something in that moment, a spark of something happens, and she realizes, I got it, and now she's going to scurry away. She gets her healing, but she didn't have all of her healing. Jesus was going to do that in the phrase, my daughter, I know you, you're mine, care for you. I know what they've said. For 12 years, they've said it. You couldn't even go to church. You weren't allowed. You, you couldn't go anywhere without the shame there. You were very aware, and the handful of people who knew it, they were very aware, but those who weren't, you were terrified they would discover. But you're my daughter. You're my son. At one point, our Heavenly Father looks at Jesus in this incredible moment, and he says, through a dove at Jesus' baptism, this is my son, whom I love, which is awesome. And then look what he says, in whom I am well pleased. It's like every time God engages these special moments, if you read them with this question in mind, what is God saying about the nature and the value and the worth of that person in this engagement? So when you read your New Testament and then you read the Gospels and you get to those red letters, one of the questions to just kick up your Bible study, what do these words reveal about the worth and the value of a person made in the image of God? How does God's words stand in direct contrast to everybody else's? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. At this point when the father says that over Jesus, he's an unknown upstart in the back desert being baptized by John. And everybody there hears this voice. It establishes an identity and it confirms the connection of our heavenly father. And I know we're talking about Jesus, so it's easy perhaps to dismiss, but all through the New Testament, that message of God's heart for you is reaffirmed. And in this case, it's daughter, I know you. You're noticed, I feel you, your situation touches me, I'm aware, you are not forgotten, I'll look you in the eye. He literally, if you just let me push, he takes her off the ground. And gives her an opportunity to look him in the face. This is our father's heart for shame. And whether that's shame because of some, some mistakes has come to you because of some mistakes you have made. They've come because of sin. And so you tell yourself because you have enough evidence if you wanted to build a case. You really are a screw up if that's what you tell yourself because you have some evidence to do that. God says, all right, I see it. But the whole reason I came was so that you wouldn't be defined by that. I literally came so that your sin, if it is your sin, you wouldn't be defined by that. I no longer call you slave, the Bible says. I call you son. That's how Paul explained what God was doing in sending Jesus. That because of Jesus, we are no longer slaves. Peter wrote about it later when he, you know, kind of grows up spiritually. And he says, like Moses, you, you, you can be a, a friend of God. You're not ashamed. They know you. Guys, come on. Come on. Your friends, your real friends, if you, if you have them. I remember when you did have them and they knew you and you still enjoyed each other's company. You remember those days? You can be a friend of God like that. So if it was about sin, God covers it. And if it was about the suffering that happened to you, so sin is you. Suffering is the thing that happens to you. Those words spoken, those realities happen, those two painful memories sometimes. The beatings, the rape, the 
the words, the rejection. I don't even know what people meant, but it landed in you in a broken way. So there's the sin he came to redeem and to redefine who you are in the middle of it, and then the suffering that happened to you that you aren't really responsible for, but it took root in you. And you wonder sometimes, did that thing that happened to me break me in such a way I can't recover? Was my mistake too big? Was the loss too big? Did I fall back too far on the scale? And I'll never, ever, ever, ever be able to do the things that I really want to do with my life. Here's what your father says to you. Daughter, I know you, and I want you. Get up off your knees. Look me in the eye. Accept you. I came for you. I stopped for you. I'm busy saving the world, but I got time for you. That's what he was saying when he stopped going to Jairus' house, the important man, and he made time for the unnamed, shame-filled, crawling-on-the-ground woman. Both 12 years. Isn't that interesting? It forces the comparison. Son, I'm pleased with you. You're capable because my power can work through you. I can redefine it all. I can still use you. I'm not done. Remember what I told you that the work I began in you, I'm faithful to complete it. I, I know, I know, you did some stuff. I, I know, I know, some stuff happened to you. But you know whose words matter and whose words define you? Mine. My words matter. Only your words define me, God. And do you know who I have to remind myself the most? Do you know whose voice I have to put the words of God's, the word of God up against the most? It's not some detractor. Some broken person saying broken things. It's, it's my own. Isn't that, isn't that the way it works? God, you have to speak to me about me. You don't necessarily have to speak to others about me. You have to speak to me about me and remind me that what the world says about my value and worth and how it happens, that's a lie. What, what my own mistakes say to me about my failure and how it defines, that's a lie. What, what I internalize as things happened to me as a kid, as an early adult in my own failings, that's all a lie because, God, you get to tell me who I am. You get to hit the restart button. The psalmist wrote it this way. Lord, you're the lifter of my head. I'm down, cast, and looking at my feet and don't make eye contact with me. But you're the lifter of my head. Can you imagine the Heavenly Father reaching over to that woman and putting his fingers under her chin and just going, no, no, look, look at me. Look at me. I have room for you. That's God's heart for you. Here it is. So how do you break free of shame? I'm way off the playbook in my message notes. Jump down to the bottom real quick. So one and two. I believe, I believe that you need to have your story heard. And you start by telling it to Jesus. Remember, Jesus saves broken people because that's the only kind of people there are. And we wanted to create a church in part where in a, in a safe and loving way, you could share some of your story. And people would remind you that God knows your story already. So you can come to him with confidence and share whatever it is you're feeling about it. And he wants to hear you. Number two, you can have your head lifted. And so the power of your new life with Jesus begins with your new identity in him. So talk to yourself like you would talk to somebody you love. If my kids are hurting and my best days as a dad, I talk to them as if they're loved. I hear you, son. I know you're upset. Yeah, that was a mistake, man. But you, know, you got to get up because you're not done. And I still believe in you. And I'll help you. And I can't do it for you, but I'll do my best to encourage you and speak for you. And while it's happening, I'll pray for you. That's how you would speak to somebody you love. So you know what you have to do? You have to tell yourself, I'm going to talk to myself like I love me because Jesus loves me. And then number three, I think you have to be restored to some loving community. And so I want to be very clear. In our church, it is okay to not be okay. 
It is okay to not be okay. And I can't promise that everybody here has all the capacity to manage all of that, but in a place like this where we know what it is to be recipients of grace, every saved child of God in here has had their head lifted. And many times, when we're, especially when we're on, we can remember that Jesus pulled us up, that he lifted us up off of our knees, and it gives us just a little extra grace and willingness to be there for those of us that aren't fully there yet. Why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's uh, take a couple steps together. So I didn't come to bring you a spirit, spirit of heaviness today. And even though I know this is a, a heavy topic, I would like for you to the best of your ability to kind of shake off. Remind yourself that you are his son. You are his daughter. You are dearly loved. And ask yourself who you're, who you're listening to. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were broken? It wasn't your heavenly father. What he'll do is he'll step in the middle of that brokenness, that exposure, and that shame, and he'll begin to cover and heal right away. And he'll provide a pathway back to full honor, dignity, restoration, purpose, and life, life abundant. It begins with the relationship. So next step, A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. You haven't yet done that? I want to give you a chance in just a moment to bow your head when we pray and say, God, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I trust the work of Jesus on the cross. I trust that he has been raised from the dead. I declare he is the Lord of my life and make things right with God. Take your pen, check next step A. When the offering buckets come by in a moment, put it in there. We'll communicate with you about what a prayer and a decision like that does for you. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Next step C is a thing we did last week, and we're going to actually pause here and do it right now. It says, I'll speak aloud each morning this week the I am's in Christ. And so if you were here last week, I did it with you. I'd like you to turn your eyes to the screen, give our sound guys just a moment to get to those, and I'd like you to say them with me. Last week, I had you say them just the last word, but I'm going to start. We'll pace ourselves. Just go with me, beginning with I am chosen. Ready? One, two, three. I am chosen with me. I am changed. I am a new creation. I am forgiven. I am blessed. I am victorious. I am set free. I am healed. I am free from condemnation. I am more than a conqueror. I am dead to sin. I am alive with Christ. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm complete in Christ. You are his son. You are his daughter. Let him define who you are are. Let man be a liar and let Christ tell you the truth. So I want you to read those this week. Say them to yourself out loud. Next step D, who would say, hey, please send me a link for this 4C Kids Camp that's coming up June 3 through 7. We'd like to send you some information, kind of tell you about it. It's a thing you can kind of send on to some friends. We're going to have a great time. Next week we'll tell you much more about it. But we'd like to go ahead and get that information in your hands. And the next step B says, send me the link to sign up for GROW number four. Remember, GROW is four experiences you go through, give you an opportunity to grow in your faith. And GROW is about revealing your mission, how you can be a part of what God's doing in this world and partner with various opportunities that are available. And that's happening on May 19th. We'll send you that link, all right? So why don't you set that aside? Thank you for, uh, for being here today. Uh, this week has been an amazing week in the life of our church on uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, over 34 seers were down in Alabama for the Freedom Conference. But yesterday we had some 35, 44 seers who were involved at the New Life Mission, and they were involved at the uh, Hamilton um, or at the, the Healing Center as well in Tri County, and they were serving our neighbors in need. So, Will, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we had just a great week, and yesterday. At the New Life Mission in Hamilton, we were able to plant uh, in the garden boxes we created last year, we built, we were able to plant fresh vegetables, onions, cucumbers, uh, just about everything. And you, you're going to see a few pictures here. And we started early. Uh, we started and got, got working. What's really awesome about that is that people in the community can come at any time and pick up fresh tomatoes. And if they want it for that day, they can come and grab them. And we're excited to see uh, how those will 
begin to be planted and, and, and just the life that will come from them. And then also at the Healing Center, uh, what's really neat there is we were able to organize and pack and get things ready for guests. And the last photo you're going to see is just a, a short story, which is really awesome, is they have a big warehouse at the Healing Center. And on it, they have a wall, and they do a timed event every single uh, time a group comes out. You can see it right here on the Serving Challenge Wall of Fame. Our group from two months ago uh, packed 50 bags in three minutes and 16 seconds. And that's our group. You can kind of see it the photo below, but we are just super fast and super awesome. And uh, every time you go there, you can see our group has a place on the wall. And if you're interested, it's always the first Saturday of the month at 930 at both locations. And uh, we really love to see you there. So 316, that's like God's number. Three for yep. the Trinity. <laughs> One plus six is seven. That's God's number. And John 316. So clearly... God's favor is on our team here. That's what that means. So none of that, by the way, is theologically sound. I just made all that up. But anyway, thanks for serving. Thanks for being a kind and gracious and generous church. Um, remember, we're still pushing through on our Easter offering. Eventually, I'll tell you more about that. But um, it's going really well. We're at over $18,000. So it's amazing. Our goal is $25,000 for our students' uh, upgrades and $5,000 for a few more things. And fifteen. dollars again, we'll get to all that uh, in, in a few weeks. So... Why don't you bow with me right now about our next steps and our offering. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for lifting our heads. God, I, I pray today that instead of a spirit of heaviness, um, you would give us garments of praise. Even in just a moment as we rise to sing, I pray that you would use this time of our worship to do battle spiritually on our behalf. That we would shake off heavy bands. We'd lift up our hearts and we'd lift up our hands. And we'd receive the smile of your face. We are your sons. We are your daughters. We are whole. We are complete. We are made new. We are fresh in you. Father, would you take our next steps and our offering and cause them to go far and wide for your glory, for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, the strong son of God, we pray. Amen and amen.